So we were walking the frozen river and there was no sign of a, a border whatsoever, no wire bars, no sign. One of our producers shouted, soldiers! There were two small soldiers with rifles chasing us really fast. And then I was filming as I was oh, running. Wow. We were all captured. You shoot, don't shoot my head. I want to survive. What is the state of your mind? Are you in shock? I cannot believe we got ourselves in a situation like this. What are you thinking in that moment when you're with Laura? Laura told me, hey, Yuna, we are the enemies. We were so frightened, but we were so calm as well at the same time. How did you guys get rid of the footage and the notes that you had? We ate the papers. The papers you ate it? Wow. They were trying to get all the information, including the sources that we met. Was there any torture? Was there any psychological torture? Was there fear tactics? What did you experience during those 140 days? A day felt like a 10 year. Did your opinion about North Korea change? Meaning, did it get worse or did it get better or just different? It was hard to separate the people of North Korea oh. with government. You know, you're a prisoner in North Korea for 140 days, but there are people living in that horrible country. I feel very lucky. So my guest today is Yuna Lee, who is a, um, best way to describe her is a documentary journalist that many years ago, more like 11 years ago, she decided to go to do a documentary with her friend, her partner in China and North Korea. And suddenly they were arrested and they were in prison for 140 days. I'll let her tell you the whole story. It got to the point where President Clinton and President Obama had to get involved to help them bring him back to the States. A very touching story. And this was inspired after having a conversation with Yonomi Park. Many of you wanted to know more about different point of views of uh, North Korea and South Korea. So we decided to reach out to Yuna Lee and she was kind enough to say yes. So Yuna Lee, thank you so much for being a guest on Value Tainment. Thanks for having me. So I know it's been a minute since this event, you know, uh, St. Patrick's Day, March, I want to say 17th of 2009, when you're out there trying to shoot this documentary with your partner, I believe Laura is her name. And uh, many times when you go through these types of experiences, most people don't want to revisit it and keep telling the story on over and over and over again. But, uh, you know, sometimes uh, uh, the man upstairs or whatever you believe in tends to use us in many different ways to either inspire, educate, or encourage others in their own ways. And uh, he, you know, and, and this has been you that's been chosen to have this story. So I appreciate your agreeing to share this story. But for some of the viewers that don't know the full story of what happened there, can you go back and kind of tell us a little bit, what was the purpose of the documentary and why did you guys choose to go to North Korea and China to shoot this? And how did this whole thing happen? Um... So before we, you know, we, I take you, you guys to the, the fatal day of March 17th, I want to uh, share how I ended up working on that documentary about uh, human trafficking in China. So it was uh, 2005, I was working for Current TV at the time, and I got to know about a documentary called Soul Train. It was about following, it was about following North Korean defectors, family, four adults, mm -hmm. and young little uh, toddler. And they were about to uh, enter the consulate, a consulate in China. So because they were told that if they crossed the gate, they would be safe. And they made safely to China. And then they tried to cross the consulate gate. And then they stopped by the Chinese soldiers. And then there was a young girl who was standing confused and then scared while watching her mom and grandma was wrestling with the uh, Chinese soldiers. At the time, I had uh, I just had a baby, and she was ten months old. Whenever I came home, uh, whenever I held my baby, it reminded me it reminded me of that little toddler with pigtail. Wow! And I told my husband, "We gotta do something about these people." I heard about North Korean defectors' uh, uh, dangerous journey uh, to escape their country and uh, their situation in North Korea, but. My life was busy as well, so I kind of uh, moved on. And four years later, 2009, I had finally had my own opportunity to tell their stories. And there were some reports about how numbers of North Korean defectors growing still, and mm -hmm. then their conditions, especially for female defectors, are really gotten worse in China. And they were prey to be human trafficking. Like they were sold to uh, farmers' wives, 
you know, as sex workers, and sometimes they were deceived when they cross, and they didn't, they don't even know what uh, they are facing when they cross the border, right? So my team and I were, uh, we traveled to South Korea and China to shed light on their conditions. And it was a very important story to us to tell the world because there are so many stories out there people don't know about. We thought this is one of the stories that people need to pay attention to, their condition, human rights in China. So that was, March 17 was our last day after it was filming in China. And we, next day, it was a day that we were about to head to the US. So in the morning, very early in the morning, we wanted to have the last shooting. Uh, showing the border between China and North Korea. So we were at the northeastern China where the Tuman River crossed between the countries. And that's, we're told that that's the uh, route that a lot of North Koreans take mm -hmm. to escape. And March 17th at, uh, in that region is still freezing and cold winter time. So river was still frozen. So we were walking the frozen river and there was no sign of a, a border whatsoever, no wire bars or no sign. You would know that if it's the border, if we, did, we were not with the fixer. Our fixer was pretty uh, connected with the area and then aware of the situation. He worked for NHK, BBC on the same matter before us. So we completely trusted him. And when we were on, the frozen river, maybe a few, about 30 minutes or so, um, filming the condition that how freezing it was and then where the, you know, this is the route that a lot of North Koreans taking. And one of our producers shouted, soldiers. So I looked back and there were two small soldiers with mm. their uniform with rifles chasing us really fast. So we all ran towards Chinese soil as fast as we could. One of our producers, Mel, was an avid runner, so he disappeared fast. And um, my fixer, our fixer was running next to me. He was like, you know, are you filming this? And I thought, is it crazy? But I flipped my camera and put my on, underarms, and then I was filming as I was oh, running. wow. So while and you're running, you're filming this entire event? We, you never know what kind of footage you're using. You wanted to show the condition, right? This is the moment that this, uh, the fear that a lot of North Koreans are going to face. And in my head, just don't, if you shoot, don't mm -hmm. shoot my head. I want to survive, right? And when I was almost close to Chinese soil, I saw Laura Ling, my colleague, fell in front of me. And I stopped. And she said, I can, I can move my, I can feel my legs. And I, I didn't know what to do, but I knew that I couldn't leave her there by herself. She doesn't speak the language. And then we were a team. And um, our fixer was, and suddenly our fixer and me and Laura was surrounded by these two soldiers. And we heard about these North Korean board, uh, border guards that how you can simply bribe them even defectors, they can pay them to cross the border. Or sometimes if you're a journalist, you can give them some cigarettes to make a small talk. So our fixer was telling me the money, money. So just give them, bribe them money to escape that situation. So I pulled out or whatever in my pocket and I gave it to them and they did not want to take it. Wow. So I knew something was going wrong. And when my fixer was not able to fix the situation, he ran as well. Maybe he wanted to take one of soldiers, you know, to, to, from the situation, I don't know. But I wanted him to run so that he can let someone our situation. Mm -hmm. Sure. And now, you know, if you don't mind me asking, how many total are you, even the producer that's a very good runner, how many total people were you, yourself, Laura, the fixer, the producer, <laughs> that's four, how many more were there? That, that was it. Oh, it was we were okay, got it. Yeah. And he, I was wrestling with the, um, uh, the one of the soldiers grabbed Laura and the other soldier grabbed me. And I saw Laura was uh, fainted. I didn't know that at the time she was hit, but she was unconscious on the ice. And um, the other soldier was uh, 
because I was beckoning and you know I was trying to yell and screaming to, to get help from Chinese soil, China, he raised his rifle to to hit me, the, taking the motion. And I looked at him, and he was a such a small he was a small boy, maybe seventeen or so, and he was hesitant to hit me at the time. So I told him, "Hey, let me walk with you." So I got up. You're speaking in his language when you're saying this to him. You're speaking in we, Korean when you're yes, speaking. Yes, I spoke okay. Korean to him. And we, I got up and I crossed the river with him. And that's how we ended up being detained in North Korea. Now, if Laura couldn't walk, what, did the other soldier carry her? Or how did Laura get there? So I screamed the, uh, Laura's uh, name so many times. And she finally uh, woke up from conscious. So we walked to an okay. army base. And, and did you later on in life figure out why he didn't take the money from you? I mean, he, he didn't try to take advantage of you guys, the two, two, you know, being two women there. He didn't try, they didn't try to do that. They didn't try to take money. Did they tell you why they didn't take money or you never found out the answer to that question? Uh, we, we heard that the border security was very tightened at the time, the, the conditions. And, um, Honestly, don't know why they didn't take money, wow. but yeah. Very interesting. So now you go there. So at this point, they don't seem like, to you, they don't seem like they're bad people. You see them as innocent young soldiers that are just trying to do their jobs. These, oh yeah, yeah. They, these, uh, these were just kids, uh, like about my height, I'm only 5'2". They were like my size and my height. And then they were... Somehow they were nervous, nervous as I, we were. I don't know why. And I had some like recorded tape in my, uh, back then we used a tape, small tape. So tape in my pocket, I had a small flip phone that uh, I used to contact people in China in my pocket. So as they walked uh, us to an army, the army base uh, in my head, I have to get rid of them. So... I looked at them and they, they were, I don't know, they were just nervous. They just told us don't talk. So I dropped, uh, I was able to drop them one by one to get rid of them. So that's the, how much they were nervous too. And when we arrived at the army base, it was, uh, it was like a movie scene that I watched from one of propaganda movies that I, when I grew up in South Korea, it was a yard they had a, a standing pole that soldiers practice uh, knife fighting. Mm -hmm. And they had me stand there. And Laura told me, hey, you know, we are the enemies. And the, the flash of the image that, that I watched from movie that, you know, the people are tied in the pole and then just being killed, just flashes. But instead, uh, an officer, tall guy, walked out of a small building, um, office building, and he had a coat in, uh, in his hand. He handed the coat to me. Uh, it's, I did not realize I wasn't wearing coat at the time because I had some phone numbers in my coat pocket. So while I was wrestling with the soldiers on the frozen river, I got out of the coat to leave that coat on the river. And... I, my teeth were chattering, but I was so nervous that I didn't even realize. And then he had me caught. So I was able to keep myself warm. So that's and, a nice gesture from him. That's probably not expected to see something happen like that. Um, not at all. Because now, I grew at, up, yeah. At this point, are you and Laura frightened? Are you, are you, how, I mean, what is the state of your mind? Are you in shock? Are you... Meaning, we, we, I cannot believe we got ourselves in a situation like this. We're about to go back to America. We got all the footage that we got. How do we find ourselves in this situation? What are you thinking in that moment when you're with Laura? We were so frightened, but we we're so calm as well at the same time. And then, you know, I think, uh, and I can't speak for her, but I wanted to believe that there is a chance that we can go back. If we talk to them, some, we can get out of this situation somehow. And... We, we talked to each other, like, let's read all these slogans, what he says, and remember all these uh, details. You mm -hmm. know, you are still in the mode of making documentaries mm. so that we didn't know what was ahead of us, but we were just at the moment that we are still 
gonna, we're going to finish these documentaries. So, so while you're there, I'm trying to get, so is it just you and Laura and the two are not with you? The fixer and the producer is no longer with you? At the time, I didn't know, but Laura had a lot mic on her when she was captured. And then she told our producers, keep running. So, so they were, don't, don't come back, keep running. And then our fixer um, read, and we both hoped that they would go somewhere to report our situation. Can you imagine, like, we were all captured? then no one would know where we would be. So, so, so in a way, the other two not getting captured helped you get uh, free eventually because of them being able to go away and tell them people that you guys were captured. I believe so. I believe so. And we had to protect our sources as well, the people who we interviewed. For them to run would uh, protect them as well in, in China and also you know, to help us uh, situation. Now, what did you do with the footage? Was the footage and the notes you took, was it with you? How did you guys get rid of the footage and the notes that you had? Or was it with the producer and the fixer? So some of the footages that we filmed in, uh, in South Korea, I left with my family before we came to China. And some of the uh, uh, footages we, we filmed in China was I heard that it's confiscated by Chinese police. But uh, luckily, when we met any uh, defectors in China, we were very careful filming there to, to hide their identity. So we did not film their faces. Did, did, did you, I read somewhere where you guys, the way you got rid of some of your notes is you ate the paper. Did you guys actually eat some of the notes or, or, or is, that, uh, uh, is that a pretty accurate statement I read? Yeah, it is. Uh, it's, uh, it seems like a long ago so faded in uh, uh, image, but it was the first day that we were captured. We were uh, moved to another, from army base, we were moved to another place. Uh, we don't know where, and, and they put us in a room. There were a short moment that we were just uh, ourselves. So I, what I knew was, I know that at some point, they're gonna find out what we did, but we need to have, uh, keep it delayed as long as we can. So we ripped the uh, tapes that we had, we possessed it. Because these people took the uh, camera that we filmed on the ice. Um, they were figuring out what they were, how the camera works and then, you know, what they were in there. So we were with our possessions uh, in the room. So we ripped the tapes and then there were some memos that we ripped it that, that can be, uh, that had uh, uh, one of sources uh, name. So we ripped it. I, I gave a half to Laura and then half. We, I told Laura to eat it and we ate. You ate the tape? No, we ate the papers. The papers you ate it. Wow. Did, did they ever during that 140 days find out that you were a documentary journalist or they never found out? They, they did. They did not uh, find it out for, uh, for a couple of days. We told them we were a student, film student. And then we followed the professor to just film the border. We were reporting about the economy situation at the border. And they didn't figure it out. They, they had a very limited uh, people speak English, but they were able to figure things out. They uh, uh, interrogated Laura and me separate. And then there were the sum of numbers did not match. And then Laura in English, we were, um, they put us uh, in cells next to each other. Laura was actually asking, you know, should we tell them? And we, we, we just wait a little bit, wait a little bit. And then until the moment that we had to tell them that we are from current TV. The, the day, uh, uh, so, so while you're there, the 140 days, what, what, what experience did you have? Was there any torture? Was there any psychological torture? Was there fear tactics? What did you experience during those 140 days? The, the one thing that really surprised me was these people. Uh, the, I grew up in South Korea, so North Korea was always enemy to us. Uh, we grew up with these uh, very animated uh, stories that how North Korean soldiers were brutally killing people, innocent people, during the, Cold, uh, during the Korean War. And um, hearing this story about young South Korean boy being brutally killed by North Korean soldiers because he said he doesn't like communists. So, they were a very scary figure to me. But whoever I met, not, not everybody was a scary figure. 
they, some of them had very kind eyes. And it, don't get me wrong, you know, when we were moved to the capital city, Pyongyang, long interrogation, they had very skilled tactic to just break our, you know, psychologically break us down. So it was a, a long psychological battle and then difficult time. But even during that time, I was able to find some human kindness, humanity in those people. Was it more, uh, 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 because the way you uh, uh, describe it, it doesn't sound like it was that bad of 140 days. It just sounds like you were in jail. So did you have terrible experiences or was it just pleasant experiences you had there? Oh, it cannot be pleasant experience. That's, that's why I was asking that because, you know, f from, and the reason why I'm asking this question is because, you know, for the viewer, we don't know North Korea uh, because we've not been there, right? Obviously, we had Yonemi Park. She gave a whole different perspective. And then we hear what we hear in the news and how uh, close North Korea is with China and China has North Korea's back and not a lot of countries tr trust North Korea. And you hear human trafficking, you hear all these other things, torture, all these things you hear about. And if you look at all the countries in the world, the darkest country in the world with lights is North Korea. And for someone like you that's there visually, it's, it, it helps the world audience, especially since we have 190 different countries plus that follow the content here. It helps for them to get a little bit more educated on what happens in some of these prisons of North Korea for us to get educated. So if you could give us the humane side of what it was, where the people are the people is different than the government and, and the torture side or the challenge. What are the two polar opposite sides for us to get better perspective? What would that be? I think because, because we were foreign journalists and then the words us very slight slings of chance that they would send us back home. I think they were careful with us what we can see, what we cannot see. So in, at the border, when we were in the cell, it was just a regular cell that anybody just seen. Like it, maybe it's a cell that North Korean defectors like, would go in there too. So it was a poor condition. They did not have uh, um, uh, the bathroom condition was horrible and just uh, food was uh, just poor. We received a, a small vegetable, like cabbage dish with a, a porridge that I don't even know if it was rice or it was uh, corn. Uh, that was a condition, true condition. But when we moved to, when we moved to Pyongyang, it, luckily I was uh, putting in a place that it's like a guest house, had a, a place with a bedroom and then right next to it was a, a guard room. But even, it doesn't matter where you are uh, put it in, you are what, you're a prisoner, watched 24 seven by guards. And then they were recorded every conversation they had with me or any of my activities. And as uh, you know, U.S. does not have a diplomatic relations with North Korea. So mm -hmm. I was not able to visit it. I mean, no one was able to visit me for 140 days except the Swedish ambassador who visited us, I think, maybe twice. And it was uh, about 10 minutes each time. So I dealt with... Uh, the four wars every day and you know how your life goes, go, goes by so fast here. We're so busy with all this kind of information. There, a day felt like a 10 year. Wow. And yes, they did not hit me physically. And I'm very, I feel very lucky. But that's just me. I know so many uh, testimonies out there from North Korean defectors, how physically they were harmed and abused. And whenever I received a simple meal, the, it was rice and soup and some fried uh, fish and vegetables, very simple meal. But even that, I was so thankful because I know so many North Koreans out were not even getting those kind of meals. Now the 140 days while you're there, how, are you and Laura in the same room or no? You and Laura are not seeing each other at all. No. Um, after we knew we were next to each other when we were at the border cell, when they moved us to Pyongyang in the middle of the journey, they separated us. And I, we didn't know we were not going to see each other until we came home. You knew that already, that you're not going to see no, each other until you come home. No, and we didn't. 
And did they use manipulative tactics to pin you guys against each other? Oh, Laura said this. Oh, Yuna said this. Oh, Laura said this. Oh, she already told us the truth. Oh, you know, were they using those stories to pin you guys against each other or no? They did. They did a pretty good job on it. It, uh, They were trying to get all the information, including the sources that we met in China. But uh, luckily, Laura does not speak Korean, so she couldn't pronounce anybody's name correctly. And at the time, I knew just one guy's name very clearly, but I would not really say his name because I knew that she couldn't, she doesn't, she didn't know his name. And the rest of them, it, it was a, I was in so sharp mode that I couldn't even remember the details, even though they repeated me to say this and that, and I just could not remember the details. So they did not get much out of us. That, that, is, uh, that is fascinating that she did. Now, Laura Ling, was she born in the States? I know you were born in South Korea. Was she born in the States? I believe so. Yeah. Okay, got it. And you were born in South Korea. Mm-hmm. And how old were you when you came to the States or you left South Korea? Uh, 24. I pretty much grew up in South Korea. So, uh, yeah. And, and your reasoning for leaving was to uh, go to the art school, I believe, right? To come out here and go to art school. And I think even eventually, well, recently after you got out in 2012, I think you got a degree from Columbia University, I believe. Yeah. So, um, I, well, I studied film because... Even when I was young, I knew that the film has a good, uh, powerful impact on people's lives. Mm. And I, so some of the uh, uh, people who made the story about a massacre in South Korea in 1980s in one city that was really, the people were killed by uh, armies, but the story didn't, uh, was not going out. So... Uh, those uh, films was going, uh, we, they, this group actually projected this film in colleges uh, in uh, late 80s. And then they were chased by uh, police officers because of the directions. So I knew how much impact that film can make. And slowly that when I came here, after I came here, I got a job at a TV uh, station and I wanted to do something more uh, rewarding. I, I didn't know what that was. And then the documentary came to, the opportunity came to, to me. It's still today, documentary production isn't, isn't, there isn't many opportunity for documentary journalists. And that was, we were very lucky to have that opportunity. And um, yeah, uh, that's how I ended up working on documentaries after 2000 incident. I kept thinking that, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Well, how could I have made it better? And that brought me to decide to go to uh, the, you know, the best journalism school in the US. So I studied journalism at Columbia. It's very impressive. I mean, it, it, it doesn't get better than that. It's one of the best of the best out there, people who know the world. It's a great school to go to. Now, you know, for somebody that lived in South Korea for, I lived in Iran for 10 years and I remember going to school and all I heard a million times was Matic Bad Omrika, Matic Bad Omrika, which is death upon America. And America was the worst country in the world. They hated people. They hated Iran. They bullied everybody. It was all these bad things I always read about Iran, right? Growing up in school in South Korea, a free nation, you're not necessarily dealing with, you know, uh, uh, all the other things that North Korea deals with. I think there was an army base in Korea called Camp Casey. A lot of our our soldiers used to go to Camp Casey. But when you were growing up in uh, South Korea in school, cartoons, education, history, how did South Korea's educational system and media paint America? How did they paint Russia? How did they paint China? And how did they paint North Korea? I'm curious. Oh, uh, I, you know, actually, I don't really remember how it, they painted uh, about other countries like Iran and China back then. But North Korea was hardly mentioned on news at the time when I grew up. It was only the taught propaganda, like education taught in schools, that how we have to be careful about the North Korean spies still out there, we need to report to police we made the poster about how we can protect our country from North Korea because they went through Korean wars and they did not want us uh, to go through another war. Um, North Korea and South are technically under armistice, right? Since uh, 
uh, Korean War ended in 1953. So it doesn't mean that we're still in peace. We're still, it's under armistice. So that's the education that we received. And about America, I think they had the two different views about America. Some people really appreciate America's help for Korean War. And some people blame America that the Korean division was because of uh, American and Russian's involvement. That's how much I remember. That's how much you remember when you were there. Got yeah. it. So, so why do you think, you said the media didn't say anything about North Korea, but education did. Is, is that what you were saying, that media wasn't talking bad things about North Korea, but educational system was? It was just not, we did not really talk here about North Korea media okay. like today's. Okay. But you hear about North Korea, all the details. There are so many defectors, about 30,000 defectors living in South Korea now. They freely speak about human rights violations in North Korea. And some people who speak English, English calling out international attention on uh, North Korean defector situation in China. So, so for you, when you went through the 140 days of being there, did any of your opinion about North Korea change? Oh, I'm sorry, Patrick, can you repeat it again? Yes, when you went to North Korea and you were there for 140 days, I mean, in the military jail, all these other places and, you know, your, you know, all these things that they're doing to you, did your opinion about North Korea change? Meaning, did it get worse or did it get better or just different? It, uh, it's uh, different. I saw, I kind of uh, understood where they're coming from and why they hate South Korea so much why they hate the U.S. so much. And that's something that similar experience that I had growing up in South Korea, that they taught propaganda towards uh, South Korea as well. So I understood where they're coming from. At the same time, I felt very um, sad for the people in North Korea because they're getting limited, uh, edited information. So the information they're receiving from their government is partially true and then partially incorrect. And that's... Uh, it was something that unbelievable for me to see that these people are watching the news about uh, uh, an old lady, blind lady, open her eyes because after drinking some drink from their leader. And who would believe that story? And these people are watching this kind of uh, news stories and they believe it. They watch about how horrible economic situation and a horrible human condition in South Korea and Western countries. That's what they believe in. That's how much they know. When you, when you were in South Korea and there was 30,000, you said 30,000 defectors today, I don't know the exact number when you left because you lived there 24 years. That's a long time to live over there, 24 years. Did you have any friends that were defectors? Did you have any uh, classmates that were defectors? Did you have any peers you were spending time with that were defectors? Oh, you did not? Nobody? No, it wasn't a big, big number. The, you know, you have to have a broker nowadays to escape North Korea. At the time, it wasn't a big, big deal. Even 2004, there weren't many, 2009, there weren't many numbers who settled in South Korea. There were some studies that from international organizations and news reports said that there were about 150 to 300,000 uh, North Korean defectors living in China, but none of the number was... Uh, just uh, you can really say which number is correct. But until 2019, there are about a little bit over 30,000 North Korean defectors settled in South Korea. Did you have any friends and co-workers and classmates that escaped North Korea to come live in uh, South Korea that you befriended? No, it would be very rare situation. If Even if uh, they uh, escaped North Korea in certain ways, that they would be quiet. So... I had no friends who came from North Korea, but uh, after after I came home, I made some friends, uh, defector, uh, North Korean defectors. Did they change your mind at all about North Korea, or did it make you uh, see even the uglier side that they're, you know, uh, maybe hiding from the populace? Because one of the things that you said, which was very interesting, is when you went to the prison the 140 days that you were there, they didn't really combine you with other prisoners because if they were by any chance going to free you, they didn't want you to have that story to go back and tell the world. So when you did get a chance to spend some time with some of the defectors, did, did you sit there and say, I cannot believe the atrocities that uh, the government, it's, 
you know, passing down to the people? Did, did, did you experience that here in the stories? No, actually, we never really talked about North Korea when we sat together. But, you know, how more, more like, you know, how we can help these people, like, to uh, the situation better. Not people in North Korea, but people in, uh, in China. Uh, that's something that we, we talk about, but it's not about, like, North Korean government. Because we already all know. Even though I did not have that experience, I read so many stories uh, from North Korean defectors, what they faced. When they are, when they, when Chinese government forced them back, repatriation on them, they would face, they would go to labor camps, re-educational camp or political camp, some are executed. So we, we already know the story that how horrible situation they would put it in if they are captured in China and sent back to North Korea. Oh, so a lot of the folks from North Korea that escaped to China didn't want to tell anybody because if they were captured, the Chinese government would send them back to North Korea. That is the problem because Chinese government, wow. even though international law and experts and then international organizations sees the North Korean defector situation as a, um, the refugee category of the UN's convention in relation to the, their refugee status, China denies to give them refugee status, asylum status. So, and they see them as illegal immigrants. So they would send back to North Korea where they face persecutions. It's what I uh, experienced myself as well. A lot of people that were escaping Iran that came to the States. I even remember Ayatollah Khomeini telling the uh, Carter that, hey, send back the Shah to Iran. We'll take care of them. And they wouldn't want to do it because... They were going to experience persecution. A lot of the people that were Baha'i religion, they were being found, and a lot of bad things happened to them. There was a, even a comedian in Germany that was found at his hotel room, Farrokhzad, I believe, that, uh, that's his last name. But uh, the story is a pretty ugly story, what they did to them. So I wouldn't be surprised. But if, if you don't mind continuing the whole 140 days, you know, some other experiencing leading to the end of it, is there any other thing that's visual that sticks to you till today that uh, you're comfortable sharing with the rest of us? Something that actually um, I remember is because of the North Korean that it's portrayed on media, maybe not nowadays anymore, but back then, they were like robotic people. Like we, we've seen people like crying, group people crying for, uh, at the, uh, for their leader's death. And then we just uh, don't understand that how someone, somebody can, the person can be so royal to this leader or this country. And they were, we thought they were very robotic people. But in some way that the people were like people, human. And I saw, whenever I saw people like making small chats or a smiling, uh, have a smile on their faces, uh, that was something that like jarring moments to me. I don't think I understood. What, what, what do you mean by that, the smiling faces? It's a, you, I would not think that they would smile naturally. You know, they would smile when they're told to smile. They would cry when they're told to smile. I didn't think they have a, a free, free to express themselves. But there were moments that I saw that they had a free expressions. And that, was, that told me that they were human like us. That's when I stopped the humanitized, humanitized them. Is that the moment where you spend some time with the two guards, the guard A and guard B, the two ladies? That's uh, some of the moments that I, I spent time and some of the moments that I spent uh, with my interrogators and some of the scenes that I watched on TV. And I had a very small, limited access to interact with people. Uh, but even that, that's, that's the sense that I received in guards. They often ask me, like, how do you pronounce this? Uh, she studied English. And that's another thing that I was surprised because uh, um, back when I was young, then I, I was told that North Korea didn't, does not teach people English because the U.S. is their enemy, right? So they were learning Russian as a second language. But um, what I saw was people were very interested in learning English because it's an international language. They wanted to be part of international. Um, so they were learning English and these guards was uh, learning English. They were singing. I don't know if they were trained or planned to sing. They were singing a song, Celine Dion's My Heart Will Go On. 
And those are the moments that like, wow, you know, did I think that the North Koreans were, uh, did I have to stereotype of North Korea? Did I equate North Korean people with uh, this government, North Korean government too much? Did I equate the North Korean people with the North Korean government? Are you trying to say that maybe the North Korean government was vicious and, uh, uh, you know, no lack of accountability or concern for human rights while the human, the the people of North Korea were regular people like you and I? Is that kind of what you're saying? You found a way to differentiate between the two? Yes, uh, you're correct. You're correct. Even though we see North Korea as a regime and then the, the brutal country that has no human right, you know, has human rights violation all the time in the country, but the people are people. The policies towards North Korea, we, we can't forget about that. There are people living in that country. Do, do you think sometimes the way the media pins North Korea makes us look at all North Koreans that way? Is, is that what you think happens sometimes? I am, and Nisa, and Nisa, I grew up like that, you know, watching and reading about North Korea, that it, it, was, it, it was hard to separate the people of North Korea wow. with the government. Yeah. So, so at what point did you, when, when, when you were going through this 140 days, at what point did you hear that you're going to get sentenced for 12 years? When, when was that moment when you got word you're going to get 12 years of labor? How, how did that happen? So after about three months of interrogations, uh, we were uh, asked that there will be a trial. And uh, the North Korean government actually offered me a lawyer that if I want to use uh, their lawyer, and I refused to use a lawyer. And um, uh, it was about three days trial. And at the end of the trial, it was June 3rd, I believe, that they sentenced me uh, for 12 years in labor camp. 12 years in labor camp. And when, when that news was given to you, what was your reaction? And were you and Laura together when you were told 12 years? We were in, in the court together. It doesn't mean that we're talking to each other, but yes. And that was the first time that I really uh, crashed it. And I held a pretty strong until that moment. And when I heard 12 years, um, I, I didn't think that I, would have, I could survive for 12 years. I was already physically so weakened. And then um, just thinking about not seeing my daughter, at the time she was four, for 12 years, and I just couldn't, I just couldn't handle it. So I crashed it on the ground and then cried. I didn't care who was watching me, but yeah, I cried really loud. You, you know, it, it seems like you didn't want to show any weakness to these folks for 140 days. Why is that? I, I thought if, uh, I think that's the part of, that's a, probably same as I giving up. Uh, if I become weak, I thought that I'm giving up hope, a sense of hope. So I had to be strong and then hopeful. Then there's a, every day I felt like it's a one day closer to go home. That was, a, that, that's how I stayed strong until they told me 12 years. So when they told you 12 years, did you at that point have the ability to make any phone calls or no, that was it? You're going back to work and, you know, do what you do or how quickly did you get some good news uh, it was regarding a, the 12 years? It, either it was June 3rd or June 4th that I heard it was 12 years. And then um, they were, I heard that they were discussing um, that where labor camp that they're going to send. I think they were in discussion because uh, the interrogator, uh, he, the interrogator who told me that, uh, that you might be together with Laura or one day came, you know, story is different. And, but um, we came on, on August uh, 4th. So two months, for two months, they were still discussing the whether, what, whether, whether they're gonna actually send us to the labor camp, or I don't know. But we were, I was just praying that when I get out of this place, I'll go home, not a labor camp. Because the labor camp, uh, um, the stories is just uh, under human conditions. 
And uh, I read in Landaba from Defector stories, so I couldn't see myself surviving in a labor camp. What what did you hear that happened at the labor camps? What, There's what hardly, there are hardly any food, and then you do the hard labors for all day. And some people, because of the lack of food that they receive, some people are even just to catch mouse and like they, they try to survive themselves in mouse and things like that. So, um, and they, they say that they see people dying uh, in their cells and some people don't even care because they're so hungry and starving. And when they receive food, your person next to you just died and then you to get that food to eat because you're hungry. That's, uh, that's the kind of stories and, that I heard over and over. Uh, uh, how did the news get delivered to you that you're going to be free and being able to come back home? So I was lucky to receive some letters from home. Of course, uh, there's no news about me coming home. But I, I learned that how a lot of people were working on our cases, that, you know, raising voices. You can see in the back here, back a banner that mm -hmm. I um, kept it from 2009. It was from one of these jails that people wrote messages to us that stay strong. So that was a message that I received from home. And North Korean uh, government did not even tell us until we come home that we were going to go home. They, the day before we came home, they told us that you have a visitor from the US and very high officer teacher. And then I asked uh, the guy who delivered the message, I asked him, is there a way to, is this moving forward or is this a way chance to go backward? And he said, oh, I think it's moving forward. So I knew that was there was something that good things going on. And uh, they took, that was the first day uh, that, um, except, the, except at the court, except that was the first day I met with Laura and that we were able to talk. And then they sent us to a hotel, it was a Korea hotel, and then they had us wait in the room for uh, over an hour. And I uh, talked to Laura and who do you think it's uh, who visited us? And I told her if it's, she goes, maybe it's Jimmy Carter or is this, you know, we, we, Bill Anderson, we, told, we talked about all the names that we, we knew who's associated with North Korea. We, Bill Clinton wasn't, President Bill Clinton wasn't even on the list. And, and I told her, I don't think I would recognize Jimmy Carter if he present Jimmy Carter is there. You know, it's his, or the image that I remember is an old picture. And, and they finally told us that you're gonna go to that room. And when we walked to the room, there were some people with uh, not Korean people with uh, earpiece and then standing around. So we knew that, okay, somebody who's very important is here. And there were two double doors. And they opened the double door. There was a, a President Bill Clinton standing with uh, his gray hair, had a big light the window that had the light backdrop on him. And, uh, and he looked like an ender to me. So he opened his arms and we ran towards him. And um, he gave us a hug. And he asked us if uh, we're doing okay, physically doing okay. Um, he told us that, uh, you know, um, I can't promise you anything at this moment, but are we, if we go, will you be able to uh, be on the plane physically? And we, we told him like, of course we're not gonna say no, yeah, yes, yes. And we saw him meeting uh, North Korean leader at the time, Kim Jong-il, uh, uh, on the news. And so Kim Jong-il kind of had a smile on his face on the news pictures. So, we thought like, oh, something's going on. Something's get, getting better, getting better. And uh, Laura was excited and I was excited at the same time too. We're still in the same room. And I, I told her, let's not open the champagne bottle yet. I, so I kept praying and kept praying until about four in the morning, they told us pack our stuff. And then we went, we were pardoned and we went to the airport, get on the plane. At what point did you fully feel free? Like, did you feel free at that moment when you were pardoned or when the plane took off? And when you were on the plane, were you on the plane with uh, President Clinton or you were on a separate plane? No, we were on the uh, plane with the President Clinton and his team. And he had, uh, 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 
he asked us if we want to make a phone call to home, uh, to family. So we were still on the uh, North Korean soil, and we ma I made a phone call to my husband, and I told him, like, hey, I'm on the plane with President Clinton. He goes, don't, no, no, don't call me back when you're in the air. So he did not want to uh, open the champagne yet until the plane takes off. So I called him back after the plane takes off, and then I finally felt, Everything felt so surreal. You know, you're a prisoner in North Korea for 140 days, and next day you are in a private jet with President Clinton, and everything felt so surreal. When you land and you're getting off the plane and you see uh, the picture of your daughter hugging you in that moment, what do you what are you thinking? Are you do you still remember it till today? Can you go to that emotion till today to know what it felt like to hold your daughter again? Yeah, of course. That was uh, the moment that makes me really emotional, but the happiest moment at the same time. Um, I, when I um, walked to her, I thought that she would recognize me right away. I didn't know how much the four months would do to this four-year-old girl. And she looked very confused. So I opened my arms and Hannah, can you give me a hug? It's mommy. And she gave me a hug. And then that's, a, that's the moment that I felt like I wanted this moment so badly. I wanted to hold my baby so badly. And yeah. I mean, when you watch it, you know, you, your daughter, you, you know, that was, she's 15 now, your daughter at four. She was hanging on to you like glue. You couldn't separate her from you the way she was mm -hmm. hugging you. It's very emotional as a parent watching that moment, uh, what it felt like for you uh, and your husband being there. And it, it's just a, it's a fascinating story to see you guys decide to your story of you wanting to get into film because you want to make impact and you choose documentary, which at a point where it's not really a lot of jobs to do, it's tough to make money in documentary to hire people. And you had the privilege of doing that. And you take a project like this and right before coming to the States, you guys get captured. Uh, uh, it's a powerful story. You know, uh, as, you, as you look back now, that was 2009 to, to, to now, a lot's changed. You know, it's a different world we're living in today than 2009. And when things like this happen to you, you know, sometimes it makes us want to research a topic a little bit more because we're so close to it. When a kid grows in a foster home and he ages, he kind of wants to find a way to give back to foster kids. When somebody is raised in a domestic violence environment and the son sees daddy abusing mom, that son wants to do something for domestic violence. You know, when somebody experiences human rights, they want to give back for human rights. Where, where you're at right now and what you experience, what is your opinion now about Kim Jong-un and North Korea? You mean the, the current leader of Kim Jong-un? The current leader, yes. Forgive my pronunciation, so I, I may have uh, pronounced it wrong, but yes, the current leader. What, what am I, what's my opinion about Kim Jong-un? Um, there are news about him that how he's, uh, he, to be honest with you, um, it's not because of, uh, I had experience with, uh, um, because of my experience in North Korea, it doesn't mean that I follow the North Korean news every day. It's more like I do feel responsible for people in North Korea and people who we met for the interview for the documentaries because, because uh, we never had a documentary released as we uh, promised. Although our case that told the bigger story about North Korean defector situation, but that there are some parts for me to feel um, guilty that I did not meet, the, meet their promise. And, but uh, for the countries, it doesn't mean that I was uh, following the news on the North Korean leaders and North Korean, the, country, uh, the, the, the current situation. I don't think their situation is better. At better than 10 years ago. Even though North Korea has a different tactics right now, they have YouTube channels to connect with the viewers. They know that how their country has been seen in a dark, uh, 
uh, the way that it's human rights violations and the dark you know economic conditions and people are starving so they don't want to show those kind of words so what they're doing is now they are they want to repress their image so they have a YouTube channel showing that how wonderful Pyongyang is all those things but that's uh, Pyongyang we all know that Pyongyang is a if you're a citizen living in Pyongyang you're a special citizen but what about the, what about the rest of the countries that people living in um, I heard about the sanctions making their economic conditions more difficult and people are starting to having difficult times. So I, uh, on and off, I think about them and then, you know, my job is continue to produce stories that, that, that true information, deliver true information for the play, uh, people who are in the place and countries like North Korea, otherwise they can get the truth. And Part of the reason that I work for Voice of America is because uh, the Korean uh, service was starting to TV team in 2017. Um, they, they produced news for people in North Korea. And uh, that's a part of the reason that I uh, decided to work for Voice of America. And now I don't, I no longer belong to Korea, the Korean service. But the it's a broader aspect that uh, we'll continue to you know, strategize uh, videos efforts for Voice of America. So we continue to provide this information for not only people in North Korea, but people in countries like Iran, China, and Russia. Other, otherwise, they wouldn't get the truth. You know, uh, you know uh, forgive me if, if I'm wrong here. Uh, uh, and I'm, if I'm wrong, just say, Pat, you're absolutely wrong. I get a feeling you you hold back a little bit uh, going against North Korea, uh, where you're either uh, 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 being extra careful uh, or you're um, you're almost not wanting to kind of uh, uh, say anything bad uh, against the uh, uh, regime of North Korea. Am I wrong, or is there a little bit of hesitation on your end? No, you. It's not, no, I don't, I don't have a hesitation, but what I'm careful is I don't, I don't want, because of what we put news out there, I don't want people to forget about people living in North Korea. You know, of course we have to throw the sanction. Of course we have to uh, stop the regime to, to test missile, all these things. But, you know, like Iran, when there was sanction on Iran, what I heard from Iranian people, friends, that what they're saying is that the, People suffer. The who suffered is not government, it's the people. So that's what I'm careful about. When I say something towards North Korea, I don't want people to forget about, you know, when you focus on the government, how horrible this government is. But there are people living in that horrible country. Uh, uh, so, so you're referencing the fact that sanctions are what made the conditions bad in North Korea and Iran, not necessarily the government? Is, is that kind of what you're insinuating or no? No, that's uh, one, of course, um, I'm just exemplifying sanctions because the sanctions, you, you are from Iran and um, sanctions on Iran and North Korea uh, are similar situations. But what we need to be, that's uh, the politics that's politics, the government to government. But the, for the human level that we have to think about people. Yeah, no, I, I fully agree. But, uh, you know, what do you do with a government that's not, that doesn't prioritize human rights, that doesn't value human rights, that doesn't uh, look at people as any kind of value? Do you just let them do everything you can in your power? Or do you impose sanctions for them to know that you can't go abusing people like this your entire life. We have to find a way to have some kind of a revolution or regime change because if it continues, people's lives are going to be continuously taken. So what do you do about it? Do you just sit on the sidelines and watch it happen? Or do you find well, I ways? I don't, don't have an answer, for, answer yeah. for it, Patrick. And then you know that I'm not saying that we just let them abuse people, right? The government abuse people. Yeah. And um, the, while governments on you know, doing their part. I think that our people as journalists, we have our job to do it as well. We will continue to report, you know, about human rights violation in the countries. We don't stop reporting about the conditions. But 
what I'm you you mentioned that I'm being careful about um, about talking about North Korean government. It's not because uh, I agree with what they're doing. It's because I'm careful because what the I don't want people to have the same experience with uh, what I had. I I I dehumanize them when I grew up in South Korea, heard about so many news about North Korean government, that there was no people in my mind. Maybe I don't understand what you mean by that. So are you, are you saying that even the powerful people in the government that are seen evil, even deep down inside, they're good people where they, there are people like you and I, is, is that what you're saying? Just average people, that's what I'm saying. Because we, the powerful people that yeah. we are so focusing on, we, are, we forget about the people, average people. You know, the question then becomes, what do you do for these guys? You know, how do you, how do you help them? You know, uh, I mean, the, the media has to do their best to do what they do. But then what do governments do? I lived in Iran and, you know, I, I wish the Iranian revolution would have never happened because I would still be living in Iran. Uh, I wish there was because uh, uh, the moment the revolution in Iran happened, conditions in Iran got worse. A half a million people died in war. That shouldn't have happened. We didn't need to have a war like that. But uh, unfortunately, things changed in Iran when Carter came and visited and he left. Right after he left, the revolution started in Iran and it cost a lot of people's lives. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, these kinds of memories, they stay, you know, because you experience it firsthand. So you, so you, so you think about it and you remember it from that perspective. So do, do you think, just last question on this topic here, do you think the approach being taken from other countries around the world towards countries like North Korea, China, and Iran is the right way to go about this with sanctions or do you think there's better ways to go about it? Um, um, it's a, you can never find the right, like the perfect answer for it. Governments make that decision because they believe in that it is uh, the right decision, right? And um, I think history will tell. And at the end, uh, in later, later that if uh, it was working or not. So I do something at the end called speed round. I'll give you a name oh, one round. word that comes to mind. So what are your thoughts when you think about Bill Clinton? My rescuer. <laughs> your rescuer, I bet, of course. Uh, what do you think about when you think about uh, uh, Barack Obama? What do I think of Barack Obama? One word. He has a heart for uh, average person like me. Okay, very cool. What do you think about uh, Trump? Trump? Trump. He communicates on social media. Okay, good. That's a safe answer. How about Kim Jong-un? Kim Jong-un, he's a, a young mind leader that wants to make change of North Korea, but did not make change much. Okay. And then Biden? Biden? Oh, was running against Trump. Was running against Trump. You know, you should consider politics because you're very political with your answers. I think you could you could have a career in politics. But look, more than anything else, uh, 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 I um, I'll give you the final thoughts. You know, with with everybody watching everything and seeing what's going on with the current conditions in the world today. What are your final thoughts? Thinking what the future is going to be for folks who are uh, living in North Korea and how we can, uh, or what we can do, you know, positive thoughts, positive for, you know, outlook on what could potentially happen in the future with the folks in North Korea. Um, you know, like I recently worked on a history, uh, history uh, pilot that was about Berlin Wall, that how it collapsed it because of the collective will of young people. I know it's uh, so hard for North Korean to have uh, collective voices because they're watching each other. But one day, I hope that they will be able to have a collective voice. They will be able to have a will to, have, to find their freedom. I love that. And I hope they get a chance to see this, to have your point of view. I know it's been 11 years since the event. But uh, every once in a while, it's good to be reminded of history and things that have been taking place. And I appreciate you being willing to relive that moment for the last hour 
and give us a different perspective of what it was like to be a political prisoner, not even a political prisoner, but be a prisoner for 140 days and eventually be free. So, uh, uh, Yuna Lee, again, thank you for your time. We're going to put the link below to your book for anybody that wants uh, your book. You can go to the link below and be able to order her book. The stories are even deeper in her book. I know it's been 11 years, but she gives a complete different optic on uh, what she experienced. And with that being said, Yuna Lee, again, thank you for making the time for being a guest on Valuetainment. Thank you so much, Patrick. So different than uh, Yonomi Park's interview that I did a few weeks ago where she was a defector, escaped in North Korea at 13 years old. She goes to China and she becomes a slave. She gets sold for two, three hundred dollars and finally goes to South Korea. Eventually finds her way here. But here's a story of somebody that was in South Korea for 24 years, comes to the States, decides to do a documentary with her friend Laura. And they go up there. They're about to finish it up. They get arrested 140 days. And they're supposed to do 12 years of labor, hard labor, and they eventually are set free and she meets President Clinton and she comes back to the States. When you heard this perspective of her story, I'm curious to know what your biggest takeaway was. I actually am to know from you what your biggest takeaway was from her point of view as somebody shooting a documentary. Did it change anything on your thoughts about human rights, about North Korea, about South Korea, about China? Anything of what she said, if yes, comment below. And if you have not yet seen the interview with Yonami Park, where she gave a speech nine years ago, or eight years ago, in two days she got 50 million views when she gave that speech at a young age, and then we had a chance to do a follow-up interview with her. If you've not seen that yet, it's very powerful. Click over here to watch that interview, and if you've not subscribed to the channel, please do so. Thanks for watching, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.